thing that I was bringing to the table was from their point of view, because there was a point in time when companies would just stand up and say, and now we change the look of our user interface from green to blue. And everybody was just like, uh, yeah, okay, right. But there was all feature focused. Like, here's what we did. Let me show you the new feature. But now things have moved to storytelling and like the customer journey and casting anything you say. So we change it from green to blue. But what we found is by doing that, it makes things more readable. And that means that you can be more productive because you can understand more about what you're doing. Helping people understand the value is so critical. Welcome to Captivate the Room with your host, internationally known voice expert, Tracy Goodwin, an award-winning speaker who has taught hundreds around the globe to make a big impact with their voice. This podcast is for anyone who wants to step onto a bigger stage, make a bigger impact, and have a voice that makes people listen. Presentation matters, and the voice is the missing link. Join in and you'll see why. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you with me today, as always. And I've got a great episode for you today. I've got a guest, Brett Hill, who's a mindfulness and communications expert. And Brett reached out to me on LinkedIn. He had heard one of the episodes and felt like our work was so aligned, and it definitely, definitely is. One of my master's degrees is in corporate communications. And we just really, we really view how we use our voice so much the same. So I think you're going to really like this episode and what he has to say about mindfulness and communication. And we just had a really great conversation. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Brett is a mindfulness and communications expert who created the language of mindfulness, soon to be a book, training, and TEDx talk in 2021. Brett is also a published technologist with two Microsoft press books, having worked as a technical storyteller and international speaker for Microsoft and others Microsoft actually even named him as a most valuable professional for nine years. But his real passion has been studying and teaching interpersonal communication, meditation, depth psychology, and mindfulness. He graduated with a degree in interpersonal communication and moved on to study Hakomi, I hope I'm saying that right, which is a mindfulness-based somatic psychology with founder Ron Kurtz. He also trained as a facilitator in Matrix Leadership Group Dynamics with founder Amina Nolan and established the Quest Institute Meditation Center in Dallas. So many things he's done and such an interesting combination, right? Technology, speaking, mindfulness, and it really does all intersect. Now, all of this combined with his speaking and teaching experiences led him to create the language of mindfulness so we can have amazing conversations every day. I think you're going to love this episode, so let's head on over and have a conversation with Brett. Brett, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you with me today. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I was so glad when... We connected and I always love it when I find people or meet people that their work is different than mine, but yet so aligned with the work Mm -hmm. that I do here. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I saw that kind of, I felt the same thing in a way. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much that I feel like in my world of mindful communications that could be of value to people who want to be better speakers that I just, I thought uh, it'd be great to reach out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't have to go all the way back to the beginning, but you've had a really interesting journey professionally feels a little different to me than the work that you're doing now, but I bet there's a synchronicity there or no, it's, Give us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so it is kind of an odd journey. And the result of it has been sort of unique skill sets that have the synergy that are really, really, uh, you know, as I said, with having accumulated some skills because I've had some great teachers, then it's kind of like, oh, my God, people have to know about this. So I kind of got excited about delivering what I'm doing now, which is more, you know, mindfulness and mindfulness communications, mindful communications. But to back up a bit, I started out in public speaking and theater and that kind of thing. Sort of the traditional, like, you know, I was in high school and I'm like, yeah, I, I want to do speeches and stuff. And I did all of that for the whole time I was there. And then I wound up with a degree in interpersonal communications because I believe that not only is it a good idea to have some skills about how to speak, but understanding the science of how we communicate and we persuade and listen and talk and how understanding really academically at some level is super helpful as well because that helps you understand what's really going on here because it's a lot more under the hood than people think. And so later I got involved with technology because I, I had a knack for explaining technical things in a way people can understand. And so I got really involved with basically explaining how technology works to people and get pretty deep technically because I decided I wanted to be a teacher trainer and that led to writing articles about certain technologies, specifically web server and internet technology that I got really interested in. And so I wound up getting invited to conferences and I spoke on stages all over the world and writing books. And I wouldn't say I became a celebrity, but I would say I got on the speaking circuit and was writing for publications back in the day. And then eventually Microsoft called and said, hey, do you want to be what they call a technical evangelist? Uh, and I said, sure. What a title. Yeah, it's an interesting title. There is such a yeah, thing, right? And right. So I get up on stage, for, and so Microsoft sent me again all over the world to talk to people about their technology, once again explaining how it is of help to people. And the thing that I was bringing to the table was, from their point of view, because there was a point in time when companies would just stand up and say, and now we change the look of our user interface from green to blue. Here it is, blue. Yay! And everybody was just like, uh, yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Moving on, kind of underwhelming, right? But there was all feature-focused. Like, here's what we did. Let me show you the new feature. But now things have moved to storytelling and like the customer journey and casting anything you say. So we change it from green to blue. But what we found is by doing that, it makes things more readable. And that means that you can be more productive because you can understand more about what you're doing. Helping people understand the value is so critical. So I did that for quite a few years and stayed in technical marketing area for oh quite a long time. And then after COVID hit, I decided to blend my mindfulness training, my public speaking training, my technology training in a certain way, or at least my skills in explaining things to what I'm doing now, which I call the language of mindfulness. And it's to help people learn to be more present and skillful in the way they communicate with other people. Okay. We're going to definitely break that down, but I want to, I want to back up for just a second. 
because something I heard in what you said about that work you did for Microsoft, which I think probably sounds like a lot of people's dream job, getting to stand on those stages all over the world. That must have been really exciting. Yeah. But I, what I, what the, in, in my language, the way I talk to my people, I heard you say, we really talk about the why and the bridges around all that data. Right. And so I was looking out to make sure that the messaging that we were delivering, so I would create demos and I would create slide decks and stand up at their main conferences and pitch to people, here's what we did and here's why it matters. Yeah. Right. And it's not from the company point of view. Well, it matters to us because we we needed to iterate on some new level of productivity at the server level, which is fine, but it doesn't mean anything to the customer unless you say, because... This allows things, now it's faster. Faster means you get more things done. You have to relate everything back to why it matters to people. Yeah, what's the benefit for me? Right, and so from a public speaking point of view, it's super powerful and important to be thinking from a speaker, as a speaker, how does what I'm saying matter to the people that are listening to me? Because they're out there going, okay, great, so you got tons of experience. I don't care if it doesn't make a difference. Mm -hmm. Give me something I can use today. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say this a lot. And I think this is what I hear you completely lining up with is it's not so much about what I want to say. It's what do you need to hear? Exactly. Right. And where do those align? Right. So it's like finding the Venn diagram, as they say, you know, like what they need to hear align with your expertise and land your main message right there in the intersection. Make it matter and tease them with something like, and what you don't know about this co-mingled area of concern is this story I've got to tell, which is going to amplify how valuable it is what I have to bring to the table. And if you're tracking all of that, then you're going to really get people attached to your message because you're paying attention. This is also part of being mindful during a presentation. You're tracking. How are they tracking me? How interested are they? Yeah. Um, And paying attention. So let's break down. There's a lot in mindfulness, mindful communication. Let's just back up and and start breaking this down because some people might not even really know what mindful is. I think most people do, but maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't. So (laughs) when you talk about this, what does this mean to you? What is the core of this concept? Of mindful communication? Yeah. Yeah, the core of it is that so let's just start with what is mindfulness really quickly and mindfulness is essentially paying attention to your own experience so meaning and that might sound really silly and like what do you mean like but it really it means okay noticing what's happening in your own nervous system so you're sitting down and you walk in let me give you an example from a a speaker point of view if you've ever been a speaker or you want to be a speaker, here's something that impacts your nervous system. You walk onto the stage. You walk into the auditorium and you walk onto that stage and suddenly you're looking out at everybody and the lights are glaring in your eyes and the sound, you have your voice is going boom because it's being amplified. That is a big nervous system change, right? You're experiencing things very, very different than when I'm having a chat with you on Zoom or I'm talking to somebody across the dinner table. That's a really different experience, right? And so what you say and how you feel in those moments is very, very different. And it's important 
as a speaker to understand that and appreciate that the difference in those experiences. Now, because I'm a mindfulness coach and trainer and spent a lot of years studying mindfulness and practicing, I'm very present with my experience. When I get up on the stage, I realize, whoa, this is a big difference here. And I, I give myself a moment to transition. Now that I've got this spaciousness and I'm kind of like more calm, I'm not like, oh my God, the light, oh my God, the thing. Instead of being rattled, I'm grounded. I'm present. Yes, I know this feeling. I know what this is like. It's not new to me because I've done it a lot. And I actually feel pretty comfortable here over the years. You know, it's like it, it brings out a different part of me. So that's step one is to get mindful and not judging, but mindful. And there's a whole practice around becoming mindful when you wish. The next thing is that now that you're mindful, what do you say and do from that place that you can't do otherwise. So let me give you a brief example. Any questions about that before? No, no, I'm writing some questions down, but okay. I'm gonna let you keep going for a while. So, so um, let's say you're having a conversation with somebody and they give you some critical feedback. They go, well, Brett, you know, you didn't really do very good at that talk. Okay, so if I'm not being present with my experience, then what's likely to happen to me, because strangely enough, even though I'm a mindfulness coach, I'm a pretty reactive character. And so someone says to me like that, and on my impulse is to go, well, what do you mean? I really worked hard on that. I didn't feel that way. What the heck are you talking about? People don't normally tell me, like, come back with a million defenses and be reactive, right? Now, there's no one home when I'm doing that. I'm not thinking, is this the best thing I can say? Is this really going to get me where I want to go? You know, there's nobody home. I'm not, I'm just being automatic. So when you're not being mindful, you're just automatic, right? So my automatic thing is to be defensive. However, if I can develop a skill, which you can, to just go, okay, I'm noticing that I want to be reactive, but I'm going to choose to do something different. I'm going to take a breath and go, hmm, okay. So this isn't about whether or not Brett is any good at what he does. This is about this person's experience, right? So first of all, it's not about me personally or my integrity as a speaker or a coach. It's about this person's experience. So I can take a breath and go, hmm, well, tell me more. Oh, suddenly it's curiosity. Tell me more about what your experience was. Well, when you came out, you know, I couldn't quite hear you very well. And so, oh, oh, okay. Well, maybe there was a problem of some kind. And but it, instead, it's instead of being about me, he didn't like my point, he didn't like my message. It was maybe a mechanical problem. I don't know. But the point is, I didn't react, and I got mindful with my experience, which was I want to react, but I'm going to take a breath, relax, chill, get curious, and inquire. Now where I'm having a conversation and I can hear what's going on and I can have a better outcome than if I'm just on automatic. So that's an example of mindful communications. So let me ask a couple of questions around that. And we're going to talk about it even more. But from your perspective, are far too many people working from that reactive state? Are far too many people focused? in the wrong direction, they're being busy, they're being distracted, they're being reactionary. Is that your perception? Yeah, not only is it my perception, that's the neurology. This is science, right? It's mm. not just an idea. It's, the, it's a fact of our nervous system. 
It's the way we're wired. When you get ready to tie your shoe, do you have to remember how to tie it every time? No, because life would be crazy if every time you had to boil water, you had to figure out how to do it, right? So we have a brain that learns, that remembers, and it creates these little shorthand circuits. So this is, you're training your neurology to do shorthand for you. In other words, oh, I just can tie my shoe without even thinking about it, right? It becomes a muscle memory. We do the same thing all the time when we interact with people. If I had to look up every word somebody spoke because I go, well, uh, I don't know what that word means. I how to say it, what, and get really into unpacking every single thing. We could never decide what to have for dinner, much less build a building or a city or solve a pandemic. You know, we, we, we'd have to have the ability to kind of just listen and respond in a very quick way. But it can become so quick that you get disconnected from what's actually happening. It can become so quick that you're not even present with what's going on for you. And so that takes another level of neural training. So there's the like, I'm just going to do what I do and things will happen automatically. And it works pretty well. You know, we get things done. But there's another layer that you can layer on, which is sort of a supervisor layer that's really hard to get to, but so powerful because that lets you organize all of the other activity in a way that you can't do otherwise. So instead of being reactive, which would be automatic, you can be at choice. But that's an act of will, and it's an act of consciousness. And that's not something, and where do you learn to do that, right? Well, they don't teach you that in school. Um, and in fact, the culture is kind of like anti that. There's so many like, you know, click here, do this, do this, watch this, do that. Everything's like short firepower, boom, 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 you know, click, 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 look at the 10-second commercial, look at the five-second headline. Super fast, high-impact little hits on our attention run contradictory to I'm going to be present with my experience. Because if you are, you'll stop doing that for a while. Yeah. You're going to get deeper. Yeah. And how did you get into that work? What attracted you to, to, and I want to hear about, I know you've done a lot of training, but what drew you to that? It was, um, well, it's, it's, it's kind of a personal story in a way that got me into it. I, uh, when I was uh, in my early 30s, I had a really rough breakup. It just, I mean, it just ripped me apart. I was, I lost my job. I was, I was a train wreck because this girl, she just pulled the rug out from under me. Mm. And eventually I, I thought I'm, I'm, my life is falling apart. And this is way, I'm out of my league here. I need help. <laughs> I need professional help. So I, I, um, I looked up a therapist and went to this therapist and, um, I walked in this therapist and he he um he said, "Well, what's going on?" He says, "Well, I had this breakup and I'm going to sh- I'm I I'm going to squeeze my hand here as an example cuz I'm like cuz I'm making my as I'm talking going, "Well, I had this relationship and I'm and it really was hard on me and as I'm sque- and as I'm doing that I'm squeezing my hand but I'm I was holding it down by my stomach, making a fist kind of, you know, like a nervous kind of fist." And instead of getting into the story so much, he said, and this is after we talked for a little while, he said, so did you, do you notice that as we're talking, you're making a fist and holding it by your stomach? And I'm going, no, who cares? You know, it's my story, right? And he goes, well, hold on. We're going to slow this way down. I want you to just really make this fist and kind of 
tend to pay attention to what's going on as you do that. And I'm going, oh, I don't know. And he's going, so if your fist could say something, what would it be saying? And this led down a path of inquiry that opened up a whole world of untapped, pent-up emotion in me. Not only about this relationship, but about a whole lot of other things where I'd had the rug jerked out from under me all of a sudden. And so the reason this relationship breakup was so hard on me was not only was I feeling the impact of this rug jerk, but every other one I'd had in my life that I had not let myself actually feel was just piling on to this. And so suddenly, instead of being like at pain threshold five, it was like pain threshold 10. And I was out of control. And so by inquiring into this one little nonverbal action, it unlocked a whole um, reservoir of unexplored territory for me that changed my life. And it was so simple and so powerful. I asked him, I said, what the heck was that? Where did that come from? How did you know to do it? He says, well, this is a thing called somatic psychology. And I said, I have to learn everything there is to know about that. And so I began to study somatic psychotherapy, in, um, mind, which was a mindfulness-based practice. And this was like back in the early 80s. And they didn't even do mindfulness anything back then. And that's when I began to say, and I put uh, my heart and soul in learning a great deal about the mechanics about how it works, the theory the, and the practice of it. And that and then informed my technical work as well as my um, my interpersonal work as well. So um, that was a, and that's a big part of the work that I do is is bringing material I've learned from that whole school into communications because there's a tremendous amount that plays over. So all that and I and I've read your bio on the intro, but all of that different training, that was all in that same school? That was all in that somatic training? Well, no, there's a, there's other stuff there, too. Okay. I, I was also, um, I did, I'm kind of like one of those, yeah, I, I've done a lot of things, but that, but that was one of them. I also did some, in the same vein, like from that same school, there were some other people who branched off to do other things. Uh, one of them was Amina Nolan, who started the Matrix Leadership Training Group. Uh, so there's like, presence one-on-one with somebody like coach to therapist or speaker to audience. But then there's also like, how do groups work? How do you be mindful and communicate in a group? And uh, Mina uh, created a fabulous uh, uh, body of work around that. And I became a, a facilitator or trained to be a facilitator in that process as well. So there's group dynamics and then there's um, body mechanics. So I studied martial arts and dance improvisation, some other things that involve sort of physical motion and then meditation. I studied some meditation from some people who were, you might call them gurus. And I did that practice as well for a while too. So quite a bit of, you know, exploring how do we show up in the world physically, emotionally, spiritually, technically, and also in a communication context as well. Yeah. It all, I I felt like it was all interrelated and I was really fascinated even with that title of that matrix training mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. sounded really interesting oh if you have any interest go to uh, amina's website matrixleadership.com or matrixleadership.org she's like one of those people that nobody's ever heard of but oh my god this stuff will change your life and she doesn't have a big book she's not out to make a bazillion dollars but it's extremely powerful work that's really about 
to it, uh, how you can own your own voice in a way that's authentic and powerful in a group dynamic. Mm-hmm. And you get the chance to explore, like, how do I show up in a group? Like, mm-hmm. really, literally, when you sit down in a group, who are you? What role do you play? And how do you interact? And because you'll have a way that you do it. But have you ever thought about, is that the way you want to do it? Is that the way that is best for you? Like one of the things I learned is that I would tell people in the group, oh, yeah, I work for Microsoft or whatever. And what that, they would immediately tag me as, oh, this guy's a technical nerd who has no emotional capacity and probably doesn't, you know, can't interact or connect with people. Well, I had this whole other side, right? That it had all this somatic therapy and connecting was kind of my specialty in a way. And and I found uh, that people would just label me as a technical nerd and they wouldn't give me a chance to kind of get in mm. in another level. And so I wound up realizing I have to not lead with that if I want a chance to connect at a deeper in a, in another way with people, like it's okay for me to bring it in. But if I say that first, it just triggers people's biases. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that until yeah. I, until I actually sat down to explore how I show up and what's working for me and what isn't. That's just one of the many ways that you can fine tune the way you interact with people in a way that is better for you and for them. That's really interesting how there's so much labeling. Oh, it's it's amazing. And it's one of the things I tell people all the time. You need to over-communicate about yourself, uh, generally speaking. Well, for me, I have to over-communicate about myself because I'm the guy who shows up in a group, wait till it's like two-thirds of the way over, uh, and don't say anything till it's about two-thirds of the way over. And then I come in really heavy and hard and, and at the end. Um, that's the way I normally do things. But what happens if you do that is everybody already has a story about you because you haven't told them anything about you. Mm-hmm. And 90% of the time, that story isn't exactly what you would want them to be writing down in their heads about you. So if you don't want people to just invent something about you, you have to fill in the blanks for them. And why is that? Well, I've got a couple of questions around this. Certainly in my work with my people, the group situation, the meeting situation, the boardroom situation Mm. is far more challenging. Yeah, it is. (laughs) That's where people struggle more. Do you see that across the board? Well, more challenging than what, for example? What do you mean? Then let's say one-on-one, this conversation with you and I versus I've got to go into the meeting with the 14 people. Yeah. Well, yes, because uh, the stakes are big uh-huh. and the and the personalities are big uh-huh. uh, and the conversations matter. And there's not a and, and you have a with you and I, for example, I can sit down and we can see we can have rapport, we can exchange. Uh-huh. There's a pacing. There's a tempo that's we've kind of established. And you, you're making a lot of space for me to talk, which I notice and appreciate. Um in a meeting, you're not the only person in the room, right? So there's a cadence you have to negotiate. And sometimes it's hard, right? Just cadence negotiation. Like, Mm -hmm. when do you talk and when don't you? You ever notice when you get with somebody where you don't get it right and how weird and awkward that is? Mm -hmm. Uh, So in a group, you're more than likely to have a whole range there. Like, there's going to be people who have hidden agendas and people who have... Uh, they're not say what they mean, and they have people who are straight up and straightforward. There's a whole range, and then there's the to- what I call the tone and temperament of the group itself. 
And this is one of the things that I learned from Amina is that the group itself has its own personality, its own its own persona, and it wants to to grow in its own way. It wants to evolve. And when you can learn to pay attention to the question, what does this group want? Then you really step into the role of being a leader, even though you might not be the leader. You're not thinking about my conversation with that guy and that guy individually, although that those good to know, good to think about. But you're also tracking the entire tone and temperament of the group. Mm. What's it like? What what wants to happen here? What's it feel like? What's the vibe, right? So, mm-hmm. so like, what's the vibe like? Oh, it's really tense in here. <sighs> okay, that means the people are holding tension. That tension didn't just appear out of thin air. It wasn't in the room before the people got there, right? So if everybody sits down and everything's tense, okay, what's in the air? What's in the room? What needs to be spoken? What isn't being spoken? And how can you facilitate that? Without necessarily going, well, it's really tense in here. What needs to be said? You know, kind of being, you know, yeah, <laughs> probably yeah. isn't going to work in a boardroom. But, but well, and I want you to answer that. How can you do that? Because so many of my people that are here for obvious reasons, they want to make a bigger impact with their voice, are going to possibly immediately go to, you know, what I just won't say anything. Yeah, and that may or may not be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. There. Um, frequently, though, it depends, and it depends on who you are, right? It's sort uh-huh. of like if if you're somebody who overtalks all the time, then it might be the right thing for you just to lay back. Because mm-hmm. here's a really big experiment for leaders and groups: is what happens if you don't say as much? When I'm teaching in a classroom, I used to do a lot of classroom teaching. Um, I would sometimes ask a question, and people wouldn't answer like first five seconds and so it's very tempting to go and so blah 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 you but what happens if you just let it sit there for 30 seconds of silence people get really uncomfortable mm-hmm. but 90 percent of the time someone will speak up and they wouldn't have spoken up if you jumped in right so if you lay back if you're somebody who's always in there and you lay back you'll find what the next level stuff that would have entered if you just if it had just had space to enter and so one of the ways that you can facilitate through leadership, even though it's not like I'm, I'm saying what happens, is to kind of make space for that which needs to enter the room. Mm-hmm. Now, if it doesn't, then you can invite it in a certain way. Like if, like if I'm noticing that, you know, Margaret at the end of the table hasn't spoken, or maybe she kind of leaned in and somebody spoke up and... And she leans back, right? Non-verbally, I'm tracking. She leans in, somebody speaks up, she leans back. Okay, that means that she was about to speak, but her moment was taken. That's not wrong or bad. But if she does that three or four times and she can't get in, I'm tracking that. I'm going to say, so, Margaret, did you have something you wanted to add? You make space for that voice to enter into what Amina would call the eyes and ears of the whole. Mm-hmm. And that way you can facilitate getting more voices in the room. And that's really part of the leadership is to get all the voices in the room. Yeah. And I see that from people ask me so often, what do I do when I'm trying to interject 
And they're just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. I I get that a lot. Mm-hmm. It's really true. And at some point or another, you have to you have to either one just lay back or you have to interject yourself. Mm-hmm. Now, another really powerful intervention um, is if someone is if if you're sitting next to somebody, and uh, and you have to do this carefully, but it's really powerful when you do it, is simply to take your hand and put it on their hand and go, you know, what I wanted to say was, because when you make physical contact like that, it's a very powerful intervention. And it's making it clear that I want to talk (laughs) without going, hey, everybody, my turn. You know, you don't have to be that forceful, although sometimes you kind of do. And not to be afraid to do that when you you feel like what you have to say is necessary, needs to be heard, and it's a you know it needs to be heard. Um, you have to be willing to take some you have to be willing to take space away from people who will overtalk you, yeah. and, uh, and that means you know sometimes getting in and stepping on toes. You have to be willing to do that, and you have to. But if you do it kindly and graciously, it's okay. And, and sometimes you can't be gracious, but you go, hey, you know, I'm really trying to say something. I and mean, if they interrupt you, you go, I'm not complete with this. Can I, can I finish what I'm saying, please? Yeah. And that's the embodiment of speak your truth. Just do it beautifully. As yeah, far well, as I'm, I'm concerned. Good, right. I mean, that's thing, exactly right. what I mean by it. But I believe that we can say exactly what we need to say. There's so much about how we say it. And I my intuitive read on you is that you would have no trouble with that <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> but i but i sure would make you feel good in the process there we go see that's right the that's the mastery that's, that's the mastery because yeah. i am a hundred percent working from the place of i am, am using my voice in a way based on how i want you to feel and yeah. i want you to feel empowered it, whether right. i'm get right you know whether i'm giving you a criticism or i'm blocking you or whatever i'm doing I want you to feel like your voice matters. Yeah, and and that you can do because it's coming from an authentic place in you that you care about people. Yeah. You know, and because you care about people, you can pull that off, you know, yeah. and because it's authentic. If it, if you didn't care about it, if you were just trying to get them to sign a check, then it would be it would be, you know, manipulative. But you're yeah. but I can I feel it in your in your words, it's like I can I can be an advocate for your your self authority because I care about you as a person and it matters that your voice gets out there, and and that's where we really align you and I. You know. Yeah. 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 So across the let me see where I want I've got a couple of different questions here but one of the things that I've had that I've been thinking about knowing you were coming on the show I certainly feel like I am. With these ears that can dissect the way they do, I feel like I'm hyper aware all the time. Mm -hmm. And in that observation over the years, I have watched communication morph in a way that I don't personally love. (laughs) Which I think you're understating significantly there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of those. Okay, maybe I don't have to be so nice, right? I want to get your perspective. You are in the trenches of that even more than me. I called it the great disconnect. I remember living in New York City and in December, not that people were talking to each other, right? But there was eye contact. There was awareness. 
And then January, everybody came back with these plugs in their ears and this little thing called an an iPod, I think <laughs> that was called. And and I've never seen it the same since. Yeah. I call it the great disconnect. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that from your perspective and you're in working in that realm. Well, I do think there has been, you know, obviously you can tell I've been around the block a little bit. And um, I do think that there has been, um, I would say, um, people are a lot less respectful of the power of words than they used to be. Mm, yeah. And that's what it gets down to, to me. It's like, I, I, there's this word that, that says, there's this phrase, you know, talk is cheap. Um, but it shouldn't be, you know, words matter and the power of, of a voice and of a being to inhabit a voice and to influence other people is a human, a human potential, a human right in a way that everyone has the, has the capacity to embody and is so powerful that when I hear people being disrespectful, I consider it disrespectful. It's like, because they're just, they're, they're using their, their language in sloppy ways. They're, they're, they're condensing gigantic concepts and just oversimplified things. They're reacting to things um, uh, in ways that are automatic and not skillful um, just to get a reaction. And you see a lot of it these days, people just, doing stuff just to get a reaction. And if you think about it, like, you know, the social media um, is a um, reaction amplifier. Basically, it's uh, the things that to jump to the top of the list are things that get the most activity, good or bad. It doesn't, they're like a Facebook feed, for example, is neutral in general about what it is if a whole bunch of people are clicking on the thing, it gets amplified. The message of the thing gets amplified. And Facebook doesn't care what it is within a certain tolerance there. But for the most part, so, so we have a culture that amplifies the strongest neurological punch that is possible to find. And those are always little pows or little gotchas, they're little headlines, they're little you know, snippets of like, uh, that's why things like, you know, uh, 20, 22 people fell off the bridge. Okay. That's, whoa, I want to know about that. And, or like, uh, you know, she really blew it with this one, you know, kind of like, mm, okay, but yeah. what's really under there, you know, what's really, what's this all about? And those headlines in and of themselves aren't bad, but what does that do to our neurology is the question. And it takes, it doesn't take away from our capacity to be more thoughtful and considerate. It just takes away the time that we might be putting into that and reinforces short, powerful, punchy communications as the norm. And so that becomes the way we do everything in our language, in our business, and it becomes short, punchy, powerful. Um, and then people lose context for what's good and bad. And even these days, there's things like, well, you know, uh, in the in the past four or five years, there's been people. Well, what? Well, can we even say that being a racist is bad? You know, is that even something that's bad to say? Uh, it's like, in the name of like trying to 
have the punchiest, most powerful headline yeah. possible. But if you were to unpack it all, then you can say, well, yeah, that is kind of a bad thing. And I don't want to teach my children to be that way. And I don't want other people to be that way. But if you are that, that's who you identify. That's a whole different topic. But the point is, it, 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 we learn to be disincentivized from um, deeper meaning and connecting. You Like you said, disconnecting. So if you're disconnecting from meaning and something that's more powerful, maybe even beautiful in your life, what are you connecting to, right? So you put the headphones in, mm-hmm. you look at your phone, what are you connecting to? And how does that change your neurology? So I agree with that's a very long-winded way of saying, yes, I agree with you. And I'm sad about yeah. that. I believe if people slowed down long enough, pay attention to what's important to them they'd realize they start to use their words more carefully Mm -hmm. because that's the way we create connection by being thoughtful by being considerate by listening by hearing Mm -hmm. instead of being active yeah yeah we we communicate in sound bites more and more so. And that is always going to be uh, dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so distressing to me. Mm-hmm. So here, so you and I were in the business of flipping that around. It's kind of like if a speaker wants to connect to their audience, they're not going to do it by having a 30 minute speech of sound mm-hmm. bites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to have to go ahead. Excuse me. No, no, you go. They're going to have to what? Go ahead. They're going to have to say something from that's that's important to the audience and whether it's technical like I used to talk mm-hmm. the reason my stuff used to work is because I would connect to this matters to you right we all want the same thing here and so like I was like you're trying to empower people and through their authenticity because that matters and from a technical stage it's kind of like well i'm not going to cause people to be more whole because of some feature in technology but it can help make their life a little better Right. Yeah. And and I can root for, hey, we all want life to be better. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a common ground, right? Yeah. Now, do you primarily work with speakers? No, I don't primarily work. With okay. Speakers. I do. I do work with speakers, but that's not uh, I, I love talking to people in, in the speaking business because there's a lot that I can do for them, particularly if there's like stage fright or anxiety or they, they don't they want to come across with more connection they want to get their stuff to the next level um that kind of thing um but i also work a lot with people who are over concerned with how people think about them they're trying to find their authentic voice they or they may be confused about what's the next best thing for them on their life path because um, they're so worried about this and that and mindfulness has a way of helping you sort that out it's sort of like I, sometimes the analogy I use is like a snow globe. You know, you shake up a snow globe and all this. You can't see the little scene. And people are, people are because we live in this soundbite world, our nervous systems are like shocked. And so people are going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, right? And so, well, mindfulness can help you take a breath, let the snow settle, and you realize, oh, my God, it's a beautiful house in here. There's a beautiful scene. It's a starry night. But I couldn't even notice that because I was in such chaotic nervous world when you calm all that down suddenly you realize there's a lot of opportunity at your feet there are keys in your hands you just didn't notice them before 
Yeah. And that's such a great analogy. Oh my gosh. I love that analogy. And, and before that, when you were talking about, uh, I'm not exactly sure what it was that, that you said <laughs> that popped into my mind that made me think about judgment. Oh, yes. Huge. Huge on this end, too. I mean, it was when you were talking about, I know when it was, it was when you were talking about, they're talking about technology, but they need to talk about what matters. I w- it made me think about judgment mm-hmm. and how wrought out in fear about judgment people are. And yeah. you see, you, that's part of your work, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. People are so, when you're not, when you, when you're not quite landed in your own authority your what i call your authentic authority your real true value of who you are let me let me put it to you like this tracy if i was to say to you you know i don't feel like you're a really authentic person i don't think that's going to rock your world because you strike you strike me as somebody who you really get it that i mean you've spent your life your life work is committed to authenticity yeah. It's your friggin' life. <laughs> yeah. You know, so if someone says to you, I don't think you're very authentic, well, maybe they had a bad experience, but it's not going to rock your world because you know who you are in that. Yeah. So it's the same thing as a speaker or in life. It's kind of like when you know you're that you're a good heart, you're a good soul, you care about people, and everything you do in your life has been about, I want to be authentic, I want to be real, I want to be helpful. I want to be truthful. If that's you, if that's really who you are, then when someone says to you, well, Brett, you're not living up to the mark, you go, oh, okay, well, what happened here? It becomes an an inquisition rather than an accusation. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I can explore the dynamics. Maybe I didn't in this situation. That doesn't make me bad. It just means that my technique may have failed a little bit, or I did. I was unconscious. Okay, we can work on that. Doesn't change who I am, right? And when you land in the the truth of who you are, and you know it in your bones, the power other people have over you through their judgment just dissipates like fog, mm-hmm. because there it doesn't. It matters in the sense of. Um, if 20 people tell you you're a jerk in a room of 30 people, yeah. that's a clue. You yeah. Know, you might want to look at that. <laughs> that you're coming across in a way that you, you, know, you feel like you're a warm hearted person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, there, there's a clue that the way you feel is not the way you're coming across. Mm-hmm. So, so you might want to reflect on how am I being, what am I doing that isn't causing, that isn't in alignment with the way that I want to be doesn't make you a bad person. Now, on the other hand, if you are being a jerk <laughs> and 20 people, right. you, you're kind of going to know, well, you know what? It's kind of right. I'm kind of being a, an ass in this situation because I don't really care. And if that's true, well, then that's what's true. And you yeah, just, it's just a choice you made. It's a choice you're making because that's in some way or another, that's been working for you. You yeah. know, that's the reason you're making that choice. Now that's going to be a limitation for you in some some other way. Like you, you get you start to work in a corporate environment where that um how people respond to you matters. There are some corporations you can be a complete asshat in and it's, and it works, but in those others, it's just not gonna fly. Yeah. Uh, and and you know, that's all gonna sort out. But is that really the world you want to have? Is that the way you want to be in the world? 
the end of the day? For most people, the answer to that is no. Yeah. And, you know, I think I say this a lot. I, of course, I believe that this work for me was ordained from the day I was born. Every there you single, go. single solitary circumstance. But I don't want to, I don't want to be that person yeah. that has to go back and go, you know what? I was a real jerk, you know, and now I will if I do it, but I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't want that to consistently be the environment that I house in this yeah, body. Yeah, of course not. It's yeah. exhausting. Well, who would want to do that? Yeah. Nobody. You know, yeah, nobody. But it makes me wonder, and this might be a, this might, this might be a dumb question. I don't know. I mean, I guess no <laughs> questions are really dumb, but how do people get aware when they're so not even aware of what it is that they, that they need? Well, the, the, it's really very simple. First of all, you have to want to. Okay. okay? You have to want to. Uh, you have to realize that whatever you're doing, you've either reached the limits of it or it's painful in some way that you want to change. Then the number one thing is to just slow down long enough to get present with what is really happening to you now. And that's the beginning practice of mindfulness. You sit down and you start to just pay attention to what is my world like right now? Not tomorrow, not if I do these things, but right now. You know, as I'm sitting here talking to you or in a mindfulness meditation, you sit down, you close your eyes and you just notice what's in the world of Brett. You know, am I excited, angry, unhappy, not being judgmental about it, just noticing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm 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 frustrated because I can't figure out what blog post to write or what the next most effective thing is to do or you know I'm not getting the TEDx talk that I want or whatever it's like okay noticing yeah okay that's true for me breathing paying attention to my breath coming back to the physical experience of what's true for me now over and over and over again that's the practice of a mindfulness meditation. I have, if you don't mind me saying, I have a, 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 a blueprint for how to start that on my website, languageofmindfulness.com slash now. And there's just like how to get started in a mindfulness practice and something anyone can do. It's doesn't, it's not take rocket science. You don't have to pay people a thousand dollars. You don't have to sit on the top of a mountaintop and meditate for hours. Just five or 10 minutes can really make a difference if you do it regularly. This is one of those practices where frequency is more important than duration. It doesn't okay. matter if you do it for an hour once a week, but five minutes a day, it, it can change your life in a dramatic, I'm, better uh, way. Yeah, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think for a lot of people, they're bought into the busy, they're getting a charge from the busy, and they have this concept this ideology that, well, I can't meditate. I don't have three hours a week to spend sitting there, you know, and, and, and that's great if you do, but that you can still get results from five minutes is what I Well, hear not you only saying. can you get results, you get results, you get highly leveraged results. Let's just say you spent oh. five or 10 minutes doing it. What that's going to wind up doing over a period of a couple of weeks is cause you to look at your day and go, you know what? My day could be 80% more efficient if I did it this way. Oh. 
Or instead of this business priority being the thing, I can now see. Remember I said you have keys in your hand you didn't see before? Mm -hmm. Well, once the scenery starts to clear, you start to see things you didn't see before. You start to make choices that you didn't know were there all along that are better choices. Yeah. Because you're clearer. You're more focused. You're able to, you're less, there's less static in your field of, in your neurology. And it's, it's really, truly amazing. You, the, the way that creative solutions can just appear out of thin air because you gave it enough spaciousness for that to occur. It's like Einstein would talk about, he's like, he would say, you know, create all this space around himself. And, and these amazing ideas would just come out of almost intuitive, would just come to him out of the blue. But that's not happening when you're busy, 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 because you have so many inputs. Yes. Yeah. We're not talking about uh, a theory here. This is neuroscience. You have to have time for the brain to integrate its inputs. I used to practice piano when I was a kid, and um, I would play and I'd play, and I couldn't get this passage right. You know, I'd bang a keyboard. I was an angry kid. It's like, couldn't get it right. And then I'd do it for like half an hour and couldn't get the passage right. Get up all pissed off, go to bed, get up the next day, play it right the first time. Mm -hmm. Because the brain would assimilate yeah. the neurology. So that it, it takes time to, it just takes time, just like we have to sleep. Um, you can't not sleep, you'll die. <laughs> right. So similar so similarly, there's a thing about slowing down to get be more productive by slowing down. Yeah. There's yeah. the whole thing like that. And so this is a real thing. Really oh, is. I believe it. I'm fully bought in. My coach, one of my coaches constantly used to say to me, You have to slow down to speed up, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's so true. It's true. You know, you can go so fast that you spin out of control and then you lose, you know, you're not going to get to your destination at all. Yeah. So you slow down a little bit and you get where you want to go because you had the presence to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you work with people? Do you do groups? Do you do online? Talk, talk to us a little about who you work with and how you work with them. Well, basically, uh, I work with people who want to uh, learn to be more um, conscious communicators. So anybody who would value benefit from that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also I can just do straight up mindfulness and lifestyle coaching, but primarily people have something in mind, you know, and then I'll do a free, like, you know, 30 minute session with somebody just to see if there's a good connection and, and, and we'll draft a little roadmap for you. So a lot of my work is one-on-one -on -one because everybody's really different. Mm -hmm. And I do have some things I'm working on that are kind of like you can step through and uh, on your own, but I, I find that the work that I do, work is really very specific for individuals. And so I'll take the general idea of what I want to do and craft a specific personalized plan for someone and then help them step through it. Uh, and it doesn't take that much to kind of make really big progress. Yeah. It's doing the right thing. The thing, the, the, right the right thing for the right, I mean, for that person. Right. So for some people, yeah. they might not they might not be able to meditate. They might be the kind of people who just can't for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are neurological types uh, and then also people who have certain kinds of problems. It's not a good idea to sit down and go, what's going on for me? Because they'll, they'll have stuff that's going on for them that is overwhelming. Yeah. And that's a thing we call trauma-informed mindfulness. And they, yeah, we can work with you, but it takes a different approach, completely mm -hmm. different. 
approach. Mm. And so that's the problem with sitting down with a kind of a one size fits all sort of thing. Yeah. So I do a lot of one-on-one and I really love it. And it's a ton of fun for me. Yeah. Now, do you still speak for Microsoft? No. Well, I guess no. everything and all of that is probably not been happening anyway, is it? Over the well, last year and a half? It's all been online, you know. Oh, okay. Okay. There's been Microsoft has gigantic conferences, like 20, 30,000 people come oh, to wow. them. And um, and I used to be a speaker at those. Uh, obviously, that's not happening, but they are going to start up all that circuit again. Soon. I don't think I'm going to be back on that stage anytime soon because I'm really trying to pivot into um, the mindfulness world and yeah. uh, and be more um, because I feel like that's strangely enough. It's kind of like I feel like even though I'm good with technology, if I'm if I was like a B plus student with tech, a B student with technology, I feel like my real strength is with interpersonal communications and mindfulness but you know my made my career here and i'm not really living in my strength in a way mm. and so finally you know i'm i'm at this last stage of my my professional career i want to i want to land with a good solid yes in where i feel like my real strength is so i'm yeah i will be doing i think some talks uh, tedx talks i'm in in fall of this year or winter of this year on mindfulness and um and we'll see what else i am going to be available for speaking as well yeah yeah that's awesome well there's no doubt that this work is incredibly valuable and in my opinion incredibly needed thank you yeah i agree completely that's why i'm doing it yeah yeah well we will so we'll put the website on the i'll, I'll link that in the show notes and we'll put the the, the link to the meditation Great. Where where else do we need to send people to find out more about your work? Or is that the main place to go? My my website is the main thing. You can also find me on LinkedIn and there's a language of mindfulness page. That's my my business name, language of mindfulness. Um there. And I'm going to be starting to doing some live streaming on that pretty Ooh. soon. And um so I'm kind of in all the media stuff. You know, there's a uh, I have my own podcast called The Language of Mindfulness that you can find uh, on iTunes or Spotify. Uh, so you can find sort of little raps like what we're doing today on there yeah. as well. So if people like it, they can find more there as well. Okay. Well, we'll link all that up in the show notes. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this. This is really fascinating and so in line. I know my people have loved hearing from you today. Well, I appreciate that so much. And I would just want to personally appreciate the work that you're doing and the the authenticity that you bring to it is uh, inspiring. So thank you. Oh, well, good. Well, thank you. And thank you, listeners. I'm so glad to have you with me today, as always. But I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up for today. Until I see you next time, you know what to do. Get out there and speak your truth. Just do it beautifully. Thanks for listening to Captivate the Room with Tracy Goodwin. You can reach out to her at CaptivateTheRoom.com and be sure to grab The Voice Formula, a free video series that will help you start making a bigger impact with your voice today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. 